Well, good morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Our text will be verses 8 through 10. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Before we dive into this passage this morning, I just want to remind you, last week we finished our Putting Down Roots series, and uh, what a great day we had together last Sunday. Uh, I was overwhelmed and humbled by your faithfulness and your kindness and your generosity as we came together to bring commitments to the Lord, and we still have commitments coming in with commitment cards, and I just want to encourage you, if you're still praying through that or you've not had an opportunity to uh, complete a commitment card yet, we still have those available. We want to encourage you to keep praying, and those can still be coming in uh, in the next few weeks. We'd love to have those by the Friday before Big Give Sunday. We're going to announce the total on Big Give Sunday, and uh, that'll be the Sunday we give of our first offering to specifically our Putting Down Roots campaign. I know some of you have been giving, keep doing that, but that's the day we kind of officially kick that in gear. And I just want to encourage you to continue to pray if you've not given already or made a commitment already. Uh, we want to encourage you to take that time again. We're wanting in 100% participation. We encourage that. And uh, I'm excited uh, to be joining together with you in this great opportunity. All right, Colossians chapter 2. I want to look beginning in verse 8. These are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would Fill our hearts with its truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you look at the world around us and consider the world in which we live, the world as a whole, despite all the advances in technology and things like that, remains a highly spiritual world. In fact, in 2017, a Pew Research poll found just over that a, a quarter of adults in America, approximately 27%, said they were spiritual, but not necessarily religious. In fact, a newspaper article interviewed people who fit the category spiritual, but not religious. That was the title of the article. Now, I want you to just read a few quotes of what these folks understood to be spiritual, but not religious. One person explained that Living in the city, I fill my apartment with plants and herbs and green life. I cleanse with Dead Sea salt baths and other herbal healing baths. I love nature and herbs. They are the magic healers of the earth and connect us to the spiritual. Another person said, the practices I consider spiritual are things that I do to care for myself in a deep way, to calm myself when I'm distressed, to create meaning out of the experiences of my life and although the person being interviewed reported that uh, to being not all that sure whether she believed in a higher power she nevertheless kept an altar in her home full of objects symbolically significant to her and sometimes she said she would perform rituals in which she calls on deities or deity archetypes and then she adds quote but I do not often believe that there is a divine order to things, practices like these can be a way to create beauty out of the chaos I feel I'm surrounded by. 
Another one said that he found, obtuse, that he found organized religion obtuse and hope, hopelessly convoluted and so has replaced an approach to organized religion by finding religious meaning in creating powerful arts. Ceremonies to me, he said, have now become my puppet shows. All of these things are the closest I get to religious experience these days. Making art and puppetry are my transcendent moments. You know, you read that article, if you were to read that article, the surprising thing about the people interviewed in that article is that the vast majority of them came out of Christian churches. The last one about the puppet shows was a Southern Baptist previously, or at least attended a Southern Baptist church. And it's a bit surprising when you think, wow, how can people be so off the mark, spiritual, but not religious? Well, I would just propose to you this morning that if you think, if I think, if we were to think that we are never capable of losing or distorting the gospel, then my prayer for us this morning is that this text would awaken us to that reality. I mean, we can look all over, example after example, of those who followed Jesus, or at least their profession was that, now doing something entirely different. We can look historically. You just look at the vast map of Europe and the United Kingdom, formerly a stronghold for the gospel, now a wasteland, more agnostic or atheistic or secular in thinking. And you think about this article and just people moving to the spiritual. We live in a very spiritual world. Everyone is spiritual to some degree. And this is really nothing new. The same issues that seem to be common today are issues that have existed for thousands of years. In fact, the believers in Colossae were being challenged and confronted by a form of spirituality that was not in line with the gospel. This was one of the reasons Paul was writing to them. He knew that they had been established in the gospel, in the truth of who Jesus was. He knew that they had been gathered now as a church and that they were built upon this gospel, and yet now there were, there were variant versions of the gospel. There were, there were new messages coming into the church trying to persuade them away from the gospel, or new spiritualities of sorts. And Paul wrote to them basically saying they had a decision to make. Would they stand firm on the foundation of the biblical gospel, or would they move away to some other spiritual option that promised fulfillment? Brothers and sisters, I would say that we face the same question today, don't we? Are we going to stay firm and rooted in the biblical gospel, or will we too be influenced and led astray, led captive to some other form of spirituality that has nothing to do with Christ? Really, the big idea that Paul's getting at this morning in this text is simply that we are called to pay attention in a world that seeks to, that seeks to take us captive. We are called to give our attention to the truth of the gospel so that we are not led captive, led astray from, from its truth. When an effort inspired by the Spirit to encourage God's people to keep their faith and from being led astray, Paul gives really two pleas here in verses 8 through 10 that I want us to look at this morning. 
verses 8 through 10, we see two pleas that Paul gives. First of all, we see that a warning about deficient philosophies. We see a warning about deficient philosophies. Look at verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits. Paul is warning them in a strong way here about his concern, about the realities that they faced. They they had been established in the gospel, and now there were false teachings coming to them, and they were surrounded by, and his concern for them had to do with the the presence of these certain false teachers seeking to lead Christians away with what we see in verse 4, what he called persuasive or plausible arguments. These were not just crazy out of the ordinary, these were arguments these, these false teachers were making that sounded reasonable. That sounded like they may make a little sense. That's the way of false teaching, by the way. I mean, you're not led astray by false teaching because of how crazy it sounds. It's subtle oftentimes. It's Jesus mixed in with a little thing here and there and, and slowly and surely. And you, you begin to realize you're, you're believing in an all entirely different gospel at some point. What was his concern? He uses the word philosophy here, and it was a widely used word that would often be used in reference to many different teachings. Simply means love of wisdom. And Paul here, he's not condemning all philosophy outright. Likely it's a term used here in reference to summarize the, the teachings of the false teachers that were making an impact in this region. And so when he refers here to the false teacher's message as being philosophy that's empty and deceitful, he exposes it for the hollow sham that it was. It had no true content. It was empty. We see the contrast, don't we? In Christ, we're told earlier in this letter, that we find riches and the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. But here, these philosophies, we find nothing but hollowness emptiness. His main goal was to warn these Christians against any teaching that would distract them from Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is always a danger. Do not think for a moment that you live in this this bubble that you're protected from teachings that will lead you away from the gospel. It's happening every day. I want us to consider several characteristics about this type of philosophy that we need to see in this text and that I think is true today as well. Several characteristics about this kind of teaching. First of all, Paul says it's human. Look what he says in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Now tradition was important to both the Jews and the Greeks. Jews and Gentiles had tradition. In fact, in fact, the Bible largely is, 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 is tradition that's been passed down generation after generation, but the reason that we trust it, it's because it was divinely inspired. So tradition on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. Both the Jews and the Greek cultures had it, and, and we know that the, apo- ap- uh, the apostolic tradition that was passed down, the gospel, is a tradition that we cherish. And this tradition that we cherish is faithfully rooted in revelation, in God's revelation to us. But here Paul is talking about an entirely different type of tradition. Jesus often spoke to this type of tradition. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees, in verse 5, 
Mark chapter 7, verse 5, the Pharisees confront Jesus and ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? To which Jesus replied, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Paul's warning here, see to it that no one takes you captive by empty and de deceitful philosophies according to human tradition is simply to remind us that the teachings being propagated in this region, oftentimes the teachings that, that are, we're being uh, influenced by are not from God, but they're made of human. They're, 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 it's a human fabrication that stands in direct opposition to the gospel at times. Friends, we should be on guard against any teaching that cannot be upheld by God's word. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how culturally appropriate it might be, any teaching that stands in direct opposition to the word of God is a teaching that you need to be very weary of, if not outright reject. Some people will even push back at that and say, well, didn't man write scripture? In fact, there were over 40 different human authors that contributed to the 66 books of the Bible that we have. So isn't this human tradition? See, the big difference is, is that what we have in Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. It is inspired. This is divinely inspired Scripture. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had a lot to do with this. In fact, everything to do with this. Even though there were multiple human instruments writing these these books, these letters, these prophecies, poetry that we find in the Scripture. The big difference is that it was divinely inspired. And really one of the things that Paul is highlighting here is, is really the issue of authority. When he's, when he's pushing back against human tradition, he's, he's, he's highlighting the issue of authority. All belief systems, every belief system you can think of, They're based on some type of standard or authority. As Christians, ours is the Bible, unashamedly so. You can find any other religion or cult or any secular humanist. Everyone has a standard of beliefs based upon some kind of authority. So the next time you're in a conversation with someone and they say, you know, I disagree with you about this, this, your concept of God. Because I tend to think that God is more like this, or I tend to think that God is more like that, or maybe they would even claim that their spirituality is different than yours for whatever reason. I would just encourage you to simply ask them, where did they get their perspective from? On what basis do they hold to the beliefs that they hold? What's their standard for holding what they hold, for believing what they believe? for living how they live. What, what's their standard? Where did they get that from? You see, however attractive their version of spirituality might appear, it can easily be exposed for what it is. 
Virtually every time you're going to be able to find that it goes back to some form of human tradition, whether it's the making up of their own mind of some concept or teaching, or they're going back to someone's opinion or viewpoint. The philosophy that Paul warns against here is philosophy that's human. It didn't originate in God, in his mind, it originated in man. The second characteristic is that it's demonic. It's demonic. Notice he says, See to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Some translations say elemental principles of the world. This word was used at times to refer to spiritual forces that had significant influence over the affairs of day-to-day existence. And whether it's actual spirits or principles in view here, Paul seems to be indicating the demonic influence behind such teaching. Not only is it human, it is demonic. Friends, we need to understand that there has always been an active spiritual presence working hard to deceive and to confuse those who embrace the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, Paul writes, he says, speaking of unbelievers, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And now we see why Paul is so adamant about the believers in Colossae being warned. While such teachings were were human in origin, there is a real spiritual force behind them that has power to manipulate and deceive and confuse and distort. You know, when you think about our practice of evangelism, when we go forth to share the gospel with someone, to speak the gospel's truth into someone's life, we do it with confidence. Why? Because we know that there is power behind our words, right? It's not our strength, it's not our power behind communicating the gospel to someone. We just give them the message and we know that the Holy Spirit is at work and he will bring conviction and illumination and awareness to the realities of the gospel and he will draw men and women to himself. We know that. Evangelism 101, right? I want you to think about this though. When you think about those who are being led astray by false gospels, do not think for a moment that there is not a spiritual force behind that. When you're hearing persuasive and plausible arguments that stand in direct contradiction to the truth of the gospel, yes, it has originated from a human mindset, but brothers and sisters, it is also having a demonic influence. There's a spiritual reality at work seeking to confuse you and distort the truth of what Christ has done. We need to understand that that is at work. Therefore, we do not, we should not take this lightly. We think about the, the, the propagation of false teachings. There's a spiritual realm at work. We know that as Christians, we can rely upon the Holy Spirit to help us. Not only is it human, not only is it demonic, it is anti-Christ. Number, number three, the third characteristic. Notice he says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Being both human and demonic, these philosophies, these false teachings, 
were not centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was one of the missing elements to these false teachings. Listen, any teaching, any teaching that takes you away from Christ or weakens his work as the all-sufficient and satisfying Savior of sinners must be rejected. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how spiritual it seems, no matter how culturally relevant it might be, if it is not according to Christ, it is not true. Remember that it is in him and him alone that we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul describes the gospel, these gospel opposing philosophies of the day as being human, demonic, and not according to Christ. And friends, that is not just a problem in Colossae. It's not just a a historically bound moment in this region at this particular time, at this particular day. Here we find in our own day and time the church having to deal with these kinds of issues. The church has always had to deal with these kinds of issues, right? I mean, this has just been the case throughout the history of the church. And, And friends, it's the case today. And it doesn't have to be packaged in a formally recognized system of false teaching. You you don't buy a kit from Amazon that says false gospel and here's the the, the 10 weeks of study on how to get it. It may show up in false teachings such as the cults or the other other religions, but friends, it's, it's often baptized, if I can use that word, in Christian lingo. The prosperity gospel is one of the most horrific attacks and assaults on the gospel that there's ever been. Prominent in the United States, it's taking many captive, not only in our own country, but in South America, Latin America, and Africa. The prosperity gospel has swept many away from the truth, the reality of the gospel, the promise that that God exists to make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. You look at that, message that's being preached, and there is no Christ in it. It's all about you. We can also point to to, to liberal theology. At its very core is a rejection of biblical authority, friends, that continues to hold sway in many places, so that even in modern times, here in our own nation, Christians are being taken captive to a philosophy that now is under the banner of progressive Christianity. So many are being led astray, taken captive, confused. We can just look inside of even Bible-believing churches, and that can exist as well, can it? Legalism and adding to the gospel. That if you really want to be a Christian, you look like this and you live like this. It has nothing to do with what Christ has taught us or what we find in Scripture, but it's according to human tradition. Years ago, a sociologist, Christian Smith, coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. I know that's a fancy word, but I think this has been a a message that the larger evangelical church has embraced wholeheartedly. We say, well, what does that mean, moralistic therapeutic deism? There's typically five tenets, and I just want you to hear these because this has probably been something you've heard before. 
And it's not a formalized system. Nobody, goes, nobody calls himself a moralistic therapeutic deist. This is just a phrase that was coined to try to describe what's going on in the broader evangelical world. Evangelical world. We're not talking about cults. We're not talking about mainline Protestantism. We're talking about evangelical world. Those who claim to hold to the gospel. Five characteristics of that says this. Number one, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over it. Second, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. How sweet. The center goal to life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God doesn't need to be particularly in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Friends, the evangelical church has often preached this kind of message. This too is a dangerous, human, demonic, anti-Christ philosophy that needs to be rejected. And it's right there in the church. No Christ, no sin, no gospel, no cross, no resurrection, no hope. There's the same temptation that hovered over the Colossians is the same that we have today. You know, we can, we can and this happens so often, we, we can take Jesus and add to him kind of a nice spread of things to create the ideal outcome. But following Jesus is not like eating at Chipotle. You just don't add to, to him whatever you want and whatever you prefer. You take Jesus for who he's been revealed to be. You don't construct a Jesus of your own making and follow that Jesus. And yet that's what so many people do. They, they like Jesus. And he's a historical figure that's really hard to deny. They like him. But they like him this way. And they like him because they think he does this and they want him to do that. And, and now they have this, this entire different Jesus than that the Bible speaks of. Friends, don't buy that. Following Jesus will never involve mixing and matching whatever you prefer him to be. Following Jesus means that you receive him as he has been revealed to be and you follow him for who he is, not for what you want him to be. Friends, let this be a strong reminder of how critical it is for us to know the truth. There's, there's plenty out there in the religious marketplace today, even under the umbrella of Christianity. We need to be discerning. We need to be wise. We need to be careful. We need to be guarded. We need to be seeing to it that no one takes you captive. One of the reasons that we gather weekly under the, the preaching and teaching of God's word is so that we're reminded week after week of the truth of who God is as, he, as he's revealed himself in scripture so that we follow God as he's revealed himself to be, not the God of our own making or the God of our own choosing. A lot of things out there will sound persuasive and will sound plausible. And there's a great danger and temptation to blend the gospel with things that are anti-gospel. Paul simply says we need to be alert. We need to beware. We need to stand guard. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to us of how we need to be diligent. Second point. It's a reminder of the sufficiency of Christ, of the sufficient Christ. See that in verses 9 and 10. Paul's overarching concern again 
for this church was that they might not be led astray into accepting Christ-denying teachings and thus be taken captive. So he returns here in verses 9, really down through verse 15, and he elaborates on why Jesus is sufficient, why he is supreme, why he is to be followed and not these other teachings. And so what he does here is he warns in verse 8, don't be taken captive. In verses 9 through 15, he explains why Jesus is worth following and not these other truths. And it's just a reminder to us that if Christians are going to be able to persevere through, through the attacks and the assaults and the barrage of, of false teachings in the world, that we must keep our eyes firmly fixed upon the truth of who Jesus is. Several things that Christ is and what Christ does that makes him sufficient. Today we're just going to consider a, a few Next week on Easter, we're going to consider the remainder in verses 11 through 15. But here the sufficiency of Christ is seen in two ways. Number one, it's seen in his fullness. We see that in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the second time Paul has said this very thing in this letter. Perhaps one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture concerning the truth of who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh. Jesus doesn't just have God-like attributes. He is fully divine. He, he is God who's come down to us. I love what Calvin said in speaking of Christ. John Calvin said, God is wholly found in him, so that he who is not contented with Christ alone desire something better and more excellent than God. So you can follow Paul's logic here. Since all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, we would be fools to embrace any philosophy that's empty. Why chase these empty, deceit, the, 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 these, these confusing philosophies that are empty and shallow and hollow when you can have the fullness found in Christ. He's sufficient because of the fullness of God that dwells in him. Number two, he's sufficient because of our own filling. Look at verse 10. Verse 9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all rule and authority. Paul is certainly using a play on words here to highlight this amazing reality. The fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ. And now, in Christ, we have been filled. Think about Paul certainly here is teaching us the importance that Christ, in Christ, we've been given everything that we need. Everything that we need in Christ. This word has been translated, you have been filled or even fulfilled. It's the same word that you'll find used in other places in the, in the New Testament describing Christians as being filled, for example, with the fruit of righteousness in Philippians 1.11. Or being filled with peace in Romans 15.13. Or being filled with goodness and knowledge in Romans 15.14. Not to mention being filled with the Spirit himself in Ephesians 5 verse 18. You see, these false teachers tried their very best to convince the Colossians that the fullness they desired was not ultimately attainable in Christ. It's okay to have Jesus, but you need something more. 
Paul here responds simply by reminding them that everything they have, everything that they need is complete in Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian, this is the reality that we enjoy. Everything you need, everything you need is found in Christ. Him alone. In Christ, we have been made complete by being filled by the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Can you (laughs) think about that? In Christ, you have been filled with the very one who has the fullness of God in him. This is, ought to blow our minds of how faithful and generous and kind and good God is that he would fill us in Christ, the very one who has the fullness of God. We're not given here the specific content of this filling, but the reality of the gospel means that your empty and broken life has been filled and made complete by Christ. In Christ, we have everything that we need. And if someone offers you something as a way to fill a void in your life, and that something has nothing of Christ in it, then you will know that it's a hollow substitute. No matter what you're offered, no matter what philosophy or spirituality that's presented to you as something that will fill and complete you, if it's not centered on the on on the gospel, upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it will not fill you. It will not complete you. And if you're in Christ, you need nothing more. I I see it all the time. I mean, we're all tempted to this in some way. We're always looking to to something more to to fill us and to complete us. Even as Christians, we're tempted this way, aren't we? When we can look at the obvious places where you have the prosperity gospel and the, and the, the progressive Christianity where, where people are really truly distorting things and saying you need this, you need to be liberated. You need to be liberated from, from, that, uh, from the Bible. You're reading it all wrong. You need prosperity. You need health and wealth. You need additional books. You need all of these things to complete you. But friends, there are even subtle things that Bible-believing Christians often think they need in order to be complete. To some degree, we all do this. And it's it's an assault against the sufficiency of Christ. We, We think that we need some lifestyle, some way of life, the American dream. If I can just live in ease, some status, if I can just earn this promotion and make this amount of money, I will be filled if I can just have this relationship, if I, can have, if, I, if I can have a child. And while many of these things are good, relationships, children, status, living with means, none of them will complete you. Only Christ can fill you and complete you. So brothers and sisters, Quit looking to empty substitutes. Even as a Christian, some of you in this room know right now that you've been looking to other things to complete you. If it's not Christ, 
they can't complete you. Rejoice, brother and sister. Rejoice in the fact that you have already been filled and been made complete. And friend, if you're here today and you've not followed Christ, you've not put your hope in Christ, our encouragement to you would be simply this. Quit looking for something to fill you. Look no more. We have the answer. His name is Jesus Christ, and he came as God in the flesh to live the life you should have lived and die the death we all deserve for our sin. And because of his own sacrifice upon the cross for sinners, he took the judgment and, and, and wrath of God upon himself to, to offer you complete pardon and forgiveness. And so, friend, if you're here today and you don't know what it means to be filled with Christ, look to him and trust in him. Turn from your sin, put your hope in him. Bank it all on him and nothing more. And you'll find salvation. Bottom line, friend, is this. If you're looking to anything else but Jesus to complete you, stop. Again, if you're in Christ, there's nothing more you need. You don't need Jesus plus something else. He and he alone is the all-sufficient Savior that has met your every need in his life, death, and resurrection. You know, there are many philosophies, many teachings, many claims on wisdom all over today. They all promise some type of peace, some type of fulfillment, some type of spirituality that you need that you don't have. But no matter how spiritual or how persuasive they might sound, brothers and sisters, we are called to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would just ask you, what philosophies are you tempted to buy? What are some of those human traditions and those worldly influences that you're tempted to buy into today. I mean, you, maybe you, you claim to follow Jesus and you, you love Christ, but you've been tempted. And maybe right now you're in the midst of being tempted to follow something else, to add to him, something as if it would complete you. And I would just encourage you to stop where you are. Find Christ as sufficient. Follow him. And you'll never be, you'll never lack. He is the only true source of peace and fulfillment. Everything else will leave you empty. So friends, don't accept any substitutes or remakes of Jesus. See to it that no one takes you captive. Keep looking to Christ. And you will find the fullness of God. And the fullness of life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this warning, this reminder, this truth. Lord, it's my prayer that, that we would be diligent by your grace and empowered by your spirit. God, would you help us to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophies that are empty and that are not centered on Christ. God, would you further root the truth and reality of the gospel in our hearts and that we would live lives of faithful service to you based upon the reality of Christ, the hope that we have in him, the truth of all that he is and all that he's done. Father, would you help us today to, to, to set our minds not on the things of this world, but that we'd set our minds on the truth of Jesus. And God, would you guard us today? Would you guard us and keep us faithful 
Would you keep us faithful, Lord, even when we're tempted to go another way? Would you help us to cling to Christ? And that our hope in him would be an anchor. That we would run the race well. All for your glory and all for your praise. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.